Hi, I'm Evan Duncan, the senior pastor of the Baptist Church of Westchester in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm so glad you found our podcast channel. On it, we share our weekly messages, and from time to time, you'll see some other things as well. If you want to learn more about our church or see how you can contact us, visit bcwc.org. It's so good to be with you to worship together on this beautiful day. You know, I was, I was nervous last night when I saw that there was a football game kicking off pretty late at night, but y'all did great. Look at everybody here. You're feeling good. If the result had been different, I'm not sure uh, as many of you would have shown up, but I'm so grateful to see you all. Uh, good morning as well to our choir. It's my first time preaching with you up here. I will do my best to remember uh, that you're watching me. Uh, And that's good. I'm going to begin with a reading from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. My my friend, we'll call him Vince, used to work at the company called SpaceX. SpaceX is that private space company, and it has one of its major facilities just about 40 minutes from where we used to live. And as I was beginning to get to know Vince, he was excited to, to take me on a tour of the SpaceX facility, and it was And it was awesome, you know, like as a kid who was into space and all that stuff to get to go see like rocket ships. I was excited. He showed me this capsule that he was working on that had come back from, it had been to space and come back and he was taking it apart for things to be reused and then donated. He showed me this big rocket that was going to go into space and then come back and land somehow. He showed me the place where they test these thrusters that work out in space where they test to make sure they're powerful enough, and he handed me this little device we had to wear that would detect radiation. But he said, don't worry. If these things go off, it's already too late. (laughs) That made me worry. But even in those early meetings with my friend, he described the grueling hours, the unforgiving pace, the lack of margin, He felt like any slip-up could mean he would lose his job. He talked about how he had a small child at home and another on the way. His faith was growing. He wanted to serve in new ways. And as we continued to have this relationship together, I watched him wrestle with this tension of having what was his dream job, but also feeling it just suffocate his life. He was excited to do this work. But he was tired, he was empty, and he felt unfulfilled at times. Perhaps you feel tired too. (laughs) Maybe if you were wearing some kind of detector that would beep not at radiation, but at the presence of stress and worry, yours would just be constantly going. (laughs) I can relate. Caring for others, worrying about kids or parents, how you'll make the bills work, how you'll navigate classes or jobs, commitments and expectations maybe others have for you, maybe you have for yourself. Perhaps you feel like the only options you have are to work yourself to the bone and be miserable or to just escape. 
I think we wonder, is it possible to be fulfilled, to feel healthy, but also be a part of creating something big and beautiful and important? It can often feel like one thing or the other. Today, we're taking on the vice of sloth. And you may say, why are you talking so much about work when we're going to talk about sloth? We'll get there. And this uh, vice challenges us. Because I think we may not know exactly what it means. I think just like the poor sloth animal is misnamed, our understanding of sloth can be misnamed. So a recap of where we've been as we've been looking at these different vices. We've been in the book of Colossians and seen this language from the Apostle Paul who says in Colossians 3, now you must rid yourself of all such things. Take off these things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language, from your mouth. We see this language again and again in Paul of taking off these ways of being in the world. And then further down in Colossians 3.12, therefore as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourself, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. In the Christian life, we see this call to get rid of some of these habits and practices of our lives and put on Christ-like responses. And it's with this in mind that we're looking at these vices and these virtues. And I have our, our little grid up here of all the different ones, and it's bigger and with a, with a lighter background so we can read it, which I'm excited about. And here we see the different vices and the different virtues. And what I love about talking about these things is, is what we often miss is that deep within us there are desires that God put there, good things that God put there, ways to respond to it as Christ calls us to virtue. And there are ways that we respond to it that are unhealthy, the vice. So today we look at sloth, which comes out of this desire within us to create and produce. We'll explain that more. And the virtue that we put on instead is diligence. So I want to point to a familiar passage first uh, when we talk about things like sloth. And it comes from the Proverbs. In Proverbs 19, verse 15, uh, I'll read that proverb to you now. Laziness brings on deep sleep. An idle person will suffer hunger. It's a familiar passage that's often used when talking about sloth, about laziness, equating sloth with laziness. And one of the temptations when we think about sloth, and really any vice, is to look at it and then think about who we can point at to be our example, because certainly not us. <laughs> Even as I prepare for these messages and look at the different vices, I think, ah, yes, this one, this one's not my problem. And then I get into it and say, oh, yeah. <laughs> we like to take sloth and use it as a weapon against others, and so we see the proverb. Idle person, laziness. Okay, let me think of who that is. See, Proverbs are valuable bits of wisdom. It's important to know how to read them. Proverbs are things that are, that are generally right on. They're useful. They're insightful. They're things that tend to hold up. Like great advice from a parent. Wear a coat, eat your veggies, make good eye contact. But we can get in trouble when we read them and don't think about them closely. 
So what is this passage telling us? Laziness brings on a deep sleep. An idle person will suffer hunger. A sense of idleness, of laziness, what does that mean? It means a refusal to engage in what is important in the world, a refusal to engage in what God is doing in the world. It's a state of being where it becomes harder and harder to do meaningful things. The sense here is that you are suspending your ability to respond to your situation in the world around you. So this is not saying that rest is bad. We have to remember that sloth is not rest. God commanded us to Sabbath. Rest is important. I am not infringing on your Sunday nap. Don't worry. When it talks about deep sleep that comes from laziness, the sense here is not normal, healthy sleep, but a state of being that you are unmoved by the things around you. That you are unable to do the good works God has given to us. See, sleep and rest are not the issue here. But this idea of being sedated is one who is unable to meet their own needs or the needs of others. And the text tells us that this kind of idleness will lead to hunger. But I think sometimes we read this proverb backwards, and it's important that we don't. Sometimes we think, ah, so a hungry person must then be lazy. That is not what it says. God invites us to rest and be still. And yes, this kind of idleness will have consequences, but just for the consequences happen for that idleness doesn't mean anybody who is hungry is lazy. Remember, sloth is not something to throw at others. See, throughout the Old and New Testament, Scripture talks about caring for other people. To understand that our worth is never about what we produce. The early Christians were known for providing resources and support for communities. To give leadership to people. People that the, the culture around them thought weren't doing enough, weren't valuable enough. So when we talk about sloth, I think it's important that we untangle the American distortion from what Scripture's really telling us. See, people's, we can believe that people's ability to work or produce is dependent only on their work ethic or willpower, but that's not always the case. In the book, uh, Taking Apart Bootstrap Theology, which our Micah 6-8 book club just read recently, uh, Terrell Carter shows how we can confuse successful employment or appropriate levels of production, whatever that is, with this Christian virtue of diligence. Carter says, in certain aspects, labor or an ability to work is always communal because it's based on an opportunity to be hired. I may have all the tools and desire to work, but if a person making a decision about hiring will not give me an opportunity because of race, class, prejudice, whatever it may be, how can I work? He continues what I think we really need to hear. He says, we struggle because we don't understand why others' lives have challenges. We want to blame them for their circumstances. We think, man, if a person only work as hard as I do, if they'd only take advantage of the opportunities I, that they were given, if they would get off their rear ends and get to work, things would be okay. I'm guilty of that too. It's because we want to believe that it is our great character, our choices, our talent, our work ethic that has gotten us everything that we have. And those things make impact. But the uncomfortable truth 
is that financial stability and consistent well-paying work are, are also impacted by forces outside our control. And I bring all this up because this myth that if you're hungry, you must be lazy has deeply impacted Christian thinking. A study from the Washington Post found that 46% of Christians say that lack of effort is what is to blame for a person in poverty, but only 29% of non-Christians said the same thing. Can you believe that? But somehow Christians think that it is willpower and willpower alone that blames people for their situation more likely than non-Christians. See, this distorted view of sloth feeds us a lie that says where I have value is tied to my work and where other people have hardships, it's because they deserve it. That is not the message of God. So what is sloth? Okay, sloth as Pastor Zach showed us in that incredible game show, is the opposite of diligence. It really was awesome. How do you follow that? <laughs> diligence, we use that word a lot, right? How, oh, what, what definition comes to mind when you think of diligence? Just grasp it right now. What does it mean to be diligent? Did you know that diligence comes from a Latin word? Diligere, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I never took Latin. But that means not work hard, not try hard, not do more. Diligence, that original word, means to love, to esteem, to give value. So, the opposite of sloth, then, is diligence. To be diligent as a Christian means we obey the call, the commitment to love. So what that means is sloth, then, is an ambivalence towards a call to love, a call to who we're supposed to be. It is a rejection of God's invitation to love God, to love others. It is an unhealthy response to a deep desire within us to create and produce, to participate in what God is doing in the world, but we see that within us and we do it with no love at all. Jesus tells us that all the laws and the prophets hang on this call to love, to love God, to love our neighbors. So then if we are unmoved by love, we are then sinning. Sin, it's been said, can be defined as a failure to love. Our favorite definition of sin. So what does it mean to be diligent and love. I think a helpful way to think about it is to think about it in our relationships. Right? Because what does it mean to be moved by love in how we think about our relationships? I'll give you an example. Let's think of an anniversary. Now, you can remember your anniversary. Remembering your anniversary does not mean I am aware of the date. <laughs> I got a calendar notification. If you're like me, I looked at, I have the date right here, okay? I am aware of the date. It is now the date I will tell you, my spouse, it's our anniversary, I remembered. <laughs> How'd that work out for me, you think? <laughs> now what does it mean to remember an anniversary? It's more, right? It's planning and responding and thinking of ways to 
celebrate or mark the occasion together. It is communication. It is to be moved to action by love. And unfortunately, in our faith, we often just think about our faith and the love of our faith of being tied up in a singular moment. I am now a Christian. Okay, see you later. But in our relationships, right? Love takes work and time, commitment, response, transformation. As the writer Kathleen Norton says, married love is eternal, but it's also daily, daily and un, as unromantic as housekeeping. See, all of us within us have this desire to create something, to produce something, to be something, to reflect God's image in the world, to produce, to have purpose. Maybe that happens in creative ways like art or music. Maybe it happens in the work you do that you get paid for. Maybe it happens in the way that you love others, but it's about participating in what God is doing around us, creating an impact an atmosphere of love. All of us were built with that desire within us. The problem with sloth is we feel that desire and we can respond in two unhealthy ways. We believe the lie that we will never create or be a part of anything that matters, so why even try? Or we think the only way to achieve that kind of value would be our work, and so all I'm going to do is try to produce and not think about anything else. Here's the wild thing about sloth, why I told that story about my friend, is because you can be restful and not be acting in sloth, right? We can rest, and it is not slothful. It is okay. It is healthy. And you can be busy and totally be caught up in the spirit of sloth. See, this root desire can take hold of us. We want to create, produce. We feel inadequate, unable, unmotivated, maybe even frightened. We doubt that God could use us, perhaps. We doubt that if we don't just control everything, it won't go the way that we hope it does, and so we just have to grasp it all. The stress and the worry sends that imaginary detector on us, beeping and beeping and beeping. Maybe we think, if this is already going off, it's too late. Maybe you doubt that God could transform you. God could really love you, so you just try to produce love on your own. How can I earn God's love? The writer Joseph Piper says, not only can sloth and ordinary diligence exist very well together, it's even true that the senselessly exaggerated workaholism of our age is directly traceable to sloth. It turns out that both the apathetic inertia of the lazy person and the perpetual motion of the busy person can both stem from a heart affected by this vice. I want to look back again at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where it said, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, with God prepared beforehand so we may walk in them. The writer wants us to understand that we do not produce our salvation or value or worth. No, no matter how hard you work, you do not produce your value. You are already loved and valuable. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more. 
No, you've been saved through faith. It is binding ourselves to Christ that rescues us. Christ rescues us. Perhaps that's what you need to hear today, your love. Christ invites you to connect your life to Christ's life, to choose love, accept Christ's loves for you, and open yourselves up to love others. Your value is not in what you produce or don't produce. Your value is not in the opportunities you've been given or where you were born, not in the circumstances that you found yourselves in, the things that went your way or didn't. Your value is in Christ. You have been saved through Christ. If you turn and confess that he's Lord. But the writer continues, says, yes, you're part of the family. Yes, you're saved from death and sin. Yes, you're free from thinking that all you are is what you can produce or all you are is terrifying, so you better distract yourself. No, God has created you for good works. So we're not saved by work, and yet God has work for us to do? Exactly. (laughs) We are invited to begin a life of transformation. To put on the ways of Christ to choose love. Diligent, the small work of showing up, caring in a relationship, choosing to put on love again and again. Diligence is not just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It is committing to the work of love. Love that's been given us and love that is for others. And we are most fulfilled when we receive it and we share it. I want to point out just another piece of that passage in Ephesians. We are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It said in other ways that you are Christ's handiwork, Christ's masterpiece. It's a word we translate into any piece of art. It comes from a Greek word poema, so it's where we get poem. That you are a work of art, God's work of art, a masterpiece. And because of that, you're invited to join in the work. One way to think about that, perhaps, is another form of art, a symphony. Pastors like to draw your attention to the poem or something like that because they're word people, but you could say symphony. That God has made us to be a beautiful symphony. God created the sheet music, passionately notated every line, and invites us to the good work of playing along. (laughs) Playing God's song. Living the life we're made to live. God's people have a part to play. And I love that symphony metaphor because it communicates this vision of what it means to be rescued and continually evolved in what God is producing. In seventh grade, I played the euphonium. If you're familiar with the euphonium, it's like a small tuba. It's a very heavy instrument to have to carry home every day. Mr. Marquez, why'd you make me take it home every day? And I think uh, parents of middle school band students know some things. You learn some things. You learn some things about grace. And when you go to that middle school band concert, you don't, you don't go to be moved by beauty by the way the piece is played, right? You don't expect every note to be executed perfectly. 
But it's still kind of beautiful, right? <laughs> to watch young musicians engaging with this new thing. There's beauty there. And when I was in seventh grade playing that euphonium, you could have handed me a beautiful piece of music and I would have tried. <laughs> but my mistakes, they don't change the beauty of the music. And that's the good news of these works that we've been created for. We've, we've been given the symphony score. Love God, love others, to be diligent, committed in our love, to, to realize we are free, not from producing our own value or, or scared of what God might do for us, but we get to participate and love and, and experiment and fail, and we won't play it right all the time, but the music is beautiful. Joining in is beautiful. We've been given the symphony. We've already been made right with God's love, so we get to play. <laughs> the way that we work and the way that we live and the way that we love. I think about our, our own church just this morning, our, our music intern getting to share with us his gifts to come back from Christmas a little bit early uh, to give a respite to our organist who's recovering from surgery. There's beauty and love there. When our, our praise band invites young people to share, to watch a kid on the drums, it's beautiful. See, our choir of voices leading in praise while caring for each other, providing encouragement, giving rides, it's beautiful. I was a seventh grader with that euphonium. Over time, I got better. <laughs> and in the same way, Christ will shape us and our playing of the music to be more and more like it was intended. Eventually, we might reflect the beauty of the grace even more. But those works don't happen overnight. Those good works we were created for. But we go forth with beauty and purpose and worth right now. Even in the meantime, even if you're a seventh grade euphonium player. My friend Vince left SpaceX to pursue a different career where he could be more present with his family, have less stress, uh, and do the things he felt God made him for. It was pretty dramatic. He went back to school. He finished his degree. That's a big change. It may not be that big for you, but we should respond to this idea of God has given me a desire to produce, to create something of value. How will I? How will I respond to that desire within me that makes me think, well, maybe I'm only valuable by what I do. What does God say about that? What might putting on diligence look like for you? Or maybe you just want to distract yourself so much with, with all kinds of different things so that you never have to deal with who God is calling you to be in transformation. Are there distractions you need to limit? Perhaps you need to hear what God thinks about you and what God is calling you to be. What does it look like to be diligent in that way? You are part of the symphony that God has invited you to play. So let us together play what he has made us for. Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to worship, to be united. I pray that you would move among us as we go forth from here, that you would remind us of the good works you have prepared for us in advance, not good works that give us status or acceptance with you, but the joy of joining in in what you are doing so that we might be fulfilled within us, a desire we have to participate in powerful, meaningful things. May this church be the kind of place where your work is everywhere. May we together play 
your symphony, and may we play it with joy. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Church of Westchester podcast. If you have questions, want to connect, or are looking for ways that you can support God's work at this church, visit bcwc.org. And as you go, through whatever your day may throw at you, I want to share this blessing with you. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness, protect you in the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go and be the church.